After uh, coming here to Virginia in August of uh, 19, uh, 2012, uh, we had drawn up a list of churches we were going to try, a, a long list that we derived from the internet. I'd prioritized which ones we were going to go to and in which sequence we were going to try them. First one on the list was First Norfolk. We came in the very first day, we were hooked and never left. Deb and I have just started uh, working with the 18 to 30-ish group known as 127, uh, which is an ideal group for me. They were looking for someone who had uh, a lot in common with the people who were in there, which included military people who were professional and who were uh, perhaps in college. And I've been in academics more years than I would care to count. I enjoy interacting with the students because a lot of this is very new to them. Uh, I, I really wrestle with issues that they either haven't dealt with or certainly have dealt with and don't have reasonable answers. Uh, so uh, I work a lot on how do you reach this conclusion, what information do you take in, how do you weigh that information, how do you place values on that decision, what's important, what's going to be important now and what's going to be important 10 years from now. Be able to prioritize their life, their studies, the things they do. Uh, and it, so it's important to really focus on those things, and so we stress that in the class. Uh, if I were to speak with someone who's not in a life group today, I would say you should be. There's excellent opportunities. It's very engaging. Uh, it really helps you hone your um, uh, Christian walk, your Christian ministry. It's encouraging. You can encourage others. Uh, there's just no downside to it. I'm Bob Stewart, and I believe life groups matter. My family came to First Norfolk when I was a freshman in college in 1984. So we have been here for um, 30 years. And in that time, I've spent most of it in the student ministry. There's so much about working with students that is fun and exciting and, and not boring. But uh, for me, easily, the, the most important thing is being able to teach the Bible because our kids live in a culture where it's, if it's right, it's okay. If it's wrong, it's okay. It depends on, depends on how you feel. And, you know, um, our kids need to be taught God's Word. Well, I love that phrase, life groups matter, because in the minds of many students, especially the students who aren't, aren't connected to a Bible study group, a life group, they're wondering that. Why does, why does this matter? And, you know, every Sunday, I feel like saying to our class, this is the best lesson yet. This is the most important lesson we've had all year. And, and I know next week I'm going to feel the same way because what the, the, the truth that comes out of Scripture and then our ability as a group just to connect with it is very important. And it, it matters in their everyday lives. I'm Jimmy Hunt, and I believe life groups matter. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. And I just want to express my thanks to Pastor Eric for letting me be here today. I'm humbled by the opportunity. I've known Pastor Eric and his brothers and his father for many years, back to Texas days, and I'm just envious of their deep voice, you know, that I can't even do it, okay? And, uh, but I want you to know you have a wonderful pastor, I know you know that, but across the country, amongst pastors, amongst his peers, he is highly esteemed and 
for his leadership, and most of all, just for his love of Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 10. I get excited when I get the opportunity to preach the Word of God, and sometimes that excitement gets me in trouble. I was pastoring out in Los Angeles, and it was the second Sunday. We had moved to a, a facility, and we were very excited about this facility and the launch of the church and, and growing the church and reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I got up early on a Sunday morning and went upstairs to a bathroom we had up there and showered and shaved, and I thought, you know, I better clean up my eyebrows, you know. I don't want to preach with a unibrow. It's my daughter's worst nightmare that I would preach with a unibrow. You know what I'm talking about? Any man have that issue here? Okay, ladies, I won't ask for a show of hands. That's not good. And uh, so anyway, uh, I said, I better clean up my eyebrows. And uh, so I pulled out the trimmer and, you know, clean, make sure no unibrow. Then I have a guard up on it, number two, and just shoom, right over my eyebrows. They're perfect, okay? No problem there. And so I didn't even look. I took the trimmer and went across my eyebrow. Then I looked up in the mirror. This eyebrow is gone. <laughs> I forgot to put the guard on. What are you going to do with one eyebrow? My family's not up. They can't draw one on for me. I just shaved the other one off. <laughs> if you ever gone without your eyebrow, eye, eyebrows, it's like you're smiling all day. All day the pastor was saying, people were saying, pastor, you look so happy. Yeah, I am. It's the joy of the Lord and no eyebrows, you know. <laughs> So I'm thankful to have my eyebrows uh, this morning. It's been about uh, 11 years since I've preached uh, consistently in a coat and tie. Uh, there's a couple of advantages. Number one, I, I could have eaten more last night because it covers a multitude of sins. But I'm, I'm not used to preaching in a coat and tie. In fact, the only time really in the last 11 years that I wear, wear a coat and tie is to do a wedding or a funeral. So if I break into some wedding vows this morning, you know what's going on, okay? But I begin to think about this service, and I begin to think today will kind of be like a wedding and a funeral. It's my prayer that some people will die to themselves today and become a part of the bride of Christ. Amen? Let's ask God to bless his word, and let's look at his word this morning. Luke chapter 10. R. Kent Hughes, one of my favorite theologians and pastors, made this statement. All humans find it difficult to live, up to, what to, to live up to what we espouse intellectually. In other words, we, we think intellectually things about our life, about the way we live, but we have a hard time living up to what we think. I have uh, found it's not uncommon in my life for me to love the idea that I love people and want to be their benefactor more than I actually love people. You ever found yourself in that boat? Oftentimes our actions don't line up with what we think in our mind. In our story today, our biblical narrative, we'll see that Jesus says that our actions, the way we love people, the way we love our neighbor, uh, those specially in need, is it has a direct correlation to our love of God. Let's look at the biblical story here, and maybe for many of you it's a familiar story. If it's too familiar, I pray that you won't just check out, but you'll let the text speak to you today, let the Holy Spirit speak to you from his text, uh, that Jesus gives these incredible words. Maybe the story's new to you, and I pray that it will come alive in your heart and mind today. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. 
and behold a lawyer. Now this lawyer is the same person that Jesus described back in verse 21. If you'll look there, Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. This lawyer is a wise and understanding man, but the things of the Lord have been hidden from him. The things of the kingdom have been hidden from him by the Father. And so behold, a lawyer, he stood up. So the setting is, they're sitting there, and Jesus is teaching with a bunch of Jewish listeners, and this lawyer is a religious Jewish man, and he stands up, and when someone stands up, when everyone else is sitting in a circle, like in a conversational circle, it's usually because they have an agenda. It's usually because they want to make a point, and he has an agenda. The lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this lawyer knew the answer to this question. This lawyer most likely knew how Jesus would answer this question. In fact, in fact, most likely this lawyer had heard on previous occasions Jesus answer this very question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Look at verse 26. Jesus answered his question with a question. Now, many times when you and I answer a question with a question, that means we're trying to figure out the answer to the question that's been asked first, and we're stalling. You know what I'm talking about? Jesus was not stalling. Jesus knew the answer to the question. He's all God and all man. He's fully God, fully man. He knows the answer to the question, but he is setting up a teachable moment for this religious lawyer. Jesus says, verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it. In verse 27, the lawyer answered with what's called the Shema. The Shema. Say Shema with me. Shema. The Shema is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. It's a passage of a scripture that this lawyer would have recited that morning out loud, and it's a passage of scripture that he would recite that evening at sunset out loud. Deuteronomy 6, 5 says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. The Shema. And then he added Leviticus 19.18, and your neighbor as yourself. In other words, the answer to the question, what shall you do to inherit eternal life, is to love God with the totality of your being and to love your neighbor as yourself. Look how Jesus responds to his answer. Verse 28, and he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. This phrase that Jesus gives, do this and you will live, is very important. And it has a deeper meaning than just what it looks like on the surface. And we'll come back to that meaning in, in just a moment. But this lawyer, he stood up, he has an agenda, he asked, teacher, rabbi, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus asked him, what do you think? What does the law say? He quotes the Shema in Leviticus 19, 18, and Jesus says, you have answered correctly, do this and you will inherit eternal life. Now you think you'd be satisfied, he would sit down, 
But because he has an agenda, he wants to justify himself. Verse 29, instead of responding in humility and brokenness to what Jesus said, instead of responding, responding in humility and brokenness at his inability to live out the Shema, to love God with the totality of one's being, and to love your neighbor as yourself, he responded to Jesus with pride. And he wanted to justify himself. You see, when Jesus answered him in uh, verse 28 and says, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Do what? Keep the Shema, love God with the totality of your being, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was saying to this wise and understanding lawyer who did not really understand the spiritual things of God, he was saying to him, it is impossible for you to inherit eternal life through keeping the Shema and loving your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was saying to this lawyer, you are looking at the only person, Jesus, who will ever live out the Shema. You are looking at the only individual who will ever live out loving God with the totality of your being. You are looking at the only human being who will ever love his neighbor as himself perfectly. Because of that, this lawyer should have responded in brokenness and in humility and surrendered his life to Jesus, the only one who could live that out. Surrendered his life to Jesus to be his savior. You see, because Jesus perfectly lived out the Shema, because Jesus perfectly loved his neighbor as himself, he could go to the cross and there upon the cross take the sins of the world, the, the inability of the rest of human, human race to live out the Shema. He could take all of our sins and pay the penalty for our sins, be placed in a tomb, and three days later rise again from the dead, conquering death, defeating Satan, so that you and I can inherit eternal life and have a relationship with the Father through him, not through our keeping of the Shema, not through our perfectly loving our neighbor as ourself, but through him. You see, the problem with this lawyer is he truly believed that he loved God with the totality of his being. He believed that in his mind. He truly believed that he loved his neighbor as himself, mainly because he and his religious comrades had so narrowed down who is our neighbor. Who is our neighbor? But he wants to justify himself, still in his pride. And he said to Jesus, verse 29, who is my neighbor? Jesus responds with a story. Story of the Good Samaritan. Let's look at it in verse 30. Jesus replied, a man, a Jewish man most likely, because Jesus is speaking to Jewish listeners and if it was not a Jewish man, he would have made reference to that point. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now this journey from Jerusalem to Jericho was a journey of 17 miles, uh, descending in elevation about 3,300 feet. 
So this man is going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He, he's robbed, he's beaten, he's left alongside of the road, half dead. Let's pick up the story in verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road. And when he saw him, he, he passed by on the other side. Most likely, theologians believe this priest had finished his temple duties in Jerusalem and was heading to his countryside home near Jericho, and he's walking by, and he sees, sees his fellow countrymen beaten, robbed, left half dead on the side of the road, and instead of living out Leviticus 19.18, to love your neighbor as yourself, he walks along the other side of the road. We don't know why, but he did. He walks along. The listeners are tracking with the story that Jesus is giving them. And next, verse 32, and so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now this Levite was not as a, a powerful as a person as the priest. He assisted the priest in temple worship. In fact, he was the temple liturgist. We don't know why he passed by on the other side, but he too, like the priest, coming from Jerusalem to Jericho, sees his fellow countrymen beaten, robbed, left half dead along the side of the road, and he also ignores Leviticus 19.18 and walks on the other side of the road. Now you need to understand the setting of the story. The story is building, and these Jewish listeners are getting excited you can almost see a, a grin breaking out of the corner of their, their, their mouth, a little smile coming. They're believing that a Jewish layman is going to be the hero of this story. They believe that a, a Jewish layman is going to do what the priest and the Levite didn't do and love his neighbor as himself. You can almost see them getting excited about this. In fact, what Jesus is about to tell them they do not have the bandwidth within their brain to understand what he is about to say. What Jesus is about to say to them is a punch to the gut. It takes their breath away. You see, the hero of the story is not a Jewish layman. It's a Samaritan. And the Jews despised and hated the Samaritans. Listen to what the rabbis had to say about the Samaritans, the, the Kuthites. Let no man eat the bread of the Kuthites, Samaritans. For he who eats their bread is as he who eats swine's flesh. The ultimate insult came in the, this arsenic-laced prayer that the rabbis would pray and the people would pray, and it ended this way. And do not remember the Kuthites, the Samaritans, in the resurrection. So Jesus is telling the story, and a Jewish priest and a Levite has not lived out Leviticus 19, and they're expecting a Jewish layman to be the hero of the story, and now they find out the hero of the story is the hated and despised Samaritan. Look at verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his animal and brought him to an inn and, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. 
saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. R. Kent Hughes says the driving power of Jesus' parable can only be felt in light of the pervasive influence of the Shema. The command to love God with the totality of one's being, it was recited every morning and every night by every faithful Israelite. The priest and the Levite in the story had recited it that morning before they bypassed the half-dead fellow Jew, and they would say it again out loud at sunset. Their neglect of their neighbor was sandwiched between pious declarations of their love for God. Can you imagine with me the intensity and the clarity of this moment for this Jewish lawyer. For you see, this Jewish lawyer, uh, he not only recited the Shema, but most likely he had attached to his forehead what's called a, a phylactery. A phylactery, which is a, a small black calfskin box that contained the words of the Shema. This was in obedience to the, the verses that immediately followed the Shema in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8 says, These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. This Jewish lawyer most likely had this box bound to his forehead that contained the Shema. That moment had to be so intense for him. For you see, he was asking Jesus to define for him who is my neighbor. And Jesus just flips the whole equation and asks this Jewish lawyer to be a neighbor to the people in his life who are in need. Regardless of race, regardless of uh, social economic standing, regardless of political affiliation, to be a neighbor to people, especially those in need. You see, this passage, this narrative, this story that Jesus gave was powerful in first century for those listeners and powerful, powerful for this Jewish lawyer, but it's just as powerful and needed in our lives today. There are some here this morning who will hear this message and you too, like this lawyer, are putting your trust in your religious activity and your pious thoughts to gain you an inheritance of eternal life, a relationship with God. And Jesus is saying to you through this story, you can never fully live out the Shema. Only I have done that. 
And if you will put your trust in me and give up trying to earn your way to me and surrender your life to me, I will take what I did, the righteous that I lived out, and I will put it into your life and put it into your account. And I will come to live inside of you. My spirit will live inside of you to begin to help you then to live out the Shema and to love your neighbor as yourself. In a moment, if you find yourself in that category, you're depending upon your religious activity to get you to God. We're going to give you an opportunity to respond by walking down here and taking a pastor by the hand and saying, I want to surrender my life to Jesus, the only man who's ever fully lived out the Shema. But this story also applies to us in this way. Believers, are, are you with me, believers? Listen, we too have our phylacteries. No, we don't walk around with black calfskin boxes attached to our head. Aren't you thankful for that? That would look a little weird, and when I stepped out in that humidity this morning, that would not have felt good. But we have our own phylacteries. Sometimes they're t-shirts. Huh? Sometimes they're bumper stickers or the almighty fish symbol as you run through that red light and honk. Sometimes we get on social media and we have Christian stickers, phylacteries that proclaim that we love Jesus Christ. Think about that for a moment. As believers, the Word says that when you surrender your life to Jesus, He comes to live in you and you are in Him. Are you thankful for that, believer? But listen to that. If Jesus... The only man who ever fully lived out the Shema and loved his neighbor as himself lives in you and he lives in me. And the evidence of that will be not just our pious declaration, our religious declarations of our love for God, but we will love our neighbor, especially those who are needy and hurting, as our self. You see, Jesus is coming straight against this thing called religion. And he's saying, I have come not to give you religion, but a relationship. I and you, you and me. In our closing moments this morning, I would like to present to you some people groups who are left along the side of the road, beaten, robbed, half dead. And they need you and I, followers of Jesus Christ, to be their neighbor. The first people group I'd like to present to you a people group that finds himself along the side of the road, beaten, robbed, and left half dead, is the 27 million people in our world who find themselves today in slavery. Right here in Tidewater and all out, all out around the world, 27 million people of all ages 
find themselves enslaved. And ignorance of this issue can no longer be an excuse we, we proclaim, Christian. They need you and I to get informed. They need you and I to get involved. They need you and I to sacrifice something in our rich lifestyle, which we are Americans, so that we can give and help ministries that are out there around the world set these people free. We, they need us to be a good neighbor like Jesus. Amen? Amen. And if you want to get more informed, I want to encourage you to go to this website. It's on the screens. Enditmovement.com Say that with me. Enditmovement.com On this website, you can learn about the issue. You can learn that it's not just something that's in another part of the world, but it's right here in Tidewater also. And it affects all of our lives. On this website, you can learn about ministries that are making a difference around the world to be good neighbors to these 27 million people. You can give. You can volunteer. With Jesus Christ in you and his spirit living in you, you and I can make a difference. I want to present to you this morning, suggest to you that another people group that finds themselves along the side of the road of life, beaten and robbed and left half dead, is the unreached and unengaged people groups of our world. According to the IMB, the International Mission Board, listen to these latest statistics. There are 11,200 people groups across the globe totaling 7 billion people. 11,200 people groups totaling 7 billion people. Of these 11,200 people groups, 6,000 544 are classified as unreached people groups by missions organizations like the International Mission Board. Let me say that again. 6,544 of the 11,200 are classified as unreached people groups. That totals about 4 billion people. What does it mean that they're unreached? It means that in their popul the population of their people group, less than 2% of their population are evangelical Christians. Less than 2% of 4 billion people. Unreached. And we have what they need. We have the remedy. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? But there's another group. They're called the unengaged unreached. Listen to this. Of the 11,200 people groups, 6,544 are unreached, but 3,006 people groups are 223 million people have no realistic access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 223 million people 
Over 3,000 people groups have no church planning initiative amongst their people. And they have no realistic access to the gospel. Christian, let's let that sink in for a moment. Before we complained that we had to walk from across the street to get in here in an air-conditioned building, let's let that sink in. That 223 million people have no realistic access to the gospel. God, forgive us. If you want to get more informed on how you can make a difference in these unreached and unengaged people groups, go to this website, imb.org. imb.org. There you can learn about these groups. There you can learn about how your church can make a difference through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. There you can learn how you can go and God may call some out of this church to go and to take the gospel to a people group who has never heard the name of Jesus. How great is that, huh? That's the greatest. There you can learn how to take a short-term mission trip and make a difference to be a good neighbor that Jesus has called us to be, to be like him. There's one more group I'd like to suggest to you, a people group that is left along the side of the road who are beaten, robbed, and left half dead. And that's the people that you and I see and walk by and work with and play with and go to school with every day who do not yet know Jesus Christ. They need us to be a good neighbor. Do you agree? Do you agree, church? They need us. We have what they need. We have the remedy for their life, for their situation. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Jesus asked the Father to send the Holy Spirit back to live inside of you and I, believer. And he empowers us to be a good neighbor to those around us who do not yet know Jesus as their Savior. I'm so excited about all the life groups you're having and the new life groups that are starting. And do you know that life groups is a, a new term for an old term? Uh, remember the old term, Sunday school? Do you know Sunday school and its or origin was started as an outreach ministry? Sunday school was never intended to be the discipleship arm of the church. It was intended to be the outreach arm of the church. If you go way back, you remember the way we know that was you had Sunday school on Sunday morning. What was on Sunday night? Training union. That was the discipleship arm of the church. Sunday morning was about outreach. 
But if we're not careful, our life groups will become about us and our consumerism and, and meeting our needs. And every life group should have some multiple chairs that are empty and everyone's got names that they're praying for to fill those chairs. People who are lost, beaten, robbed, half dead along the side of the road and they need us to be their neighbor in life groups. We need to be their neighbor through the power of Jesus Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit and see them come fill those chairs in our life group and come to know Jesus as their Savior. You see, this story is so applicable and pointed for our day. Jesus is saying to us this morning, I love when you get up in the morning and worship me. <laughs> I love in the evening when you worship me. But in between that, show that it's not just mental assent. Show that it's from heart by loving your neighbor. Loving your neighbor.